0: It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, documentary filmmaker, author, and music writer, Robert Gordon.
1: They like to create Roman candle wars where these these harmless fireballs are shot at each other as often as possible between the commercial breaks. And that's modern puppetry. But this is two guys fully engaged with the stakes being the future of the nation. The Republic is at play here and each really believes that the other will take down the nation and so they have to take down that person to prevent them from taking down the nation
0: welcome back to the fun to know podcast we've treated august much the way a french citizen would but now we're back And I'm Dan Buskirk, here where we talk about artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the fun to know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, leave comments for us there, or email us at fun Know Podcast, always with the numeral 2, at gmail.com. Our iTunes page is thirsty for reviews. Head on over to our page at iTunes and quench the thirst. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome a man whose work I've enjoyed for decades, Its writer, film director, and musicologist, Robert Gordon. Mr. Gordon is particularly a specialist in the music and history of the town where he still lives, the legendary American music hub of Memphis, Tennessee. He's written about everyone big and small you've ever heard of who came through that town, from Muddy Waters to Elvis Presley, Rufus Thomas, Al Green, B.B. King, Otis Redding to Alex Chilton and beyond. Many writers have charted the course of music, but almost none have done it with the emotional depth and deep historical knowledge that Gordon has, and his works have always stood out to musicians and music lovers as the work of a deeply devoted fellow soul. Since 2003, Gordon has transformed himself from writer to filmmaker, making acclaimed documentary films contributing to Martin Scorsese's The Blues series, adapting his Muddy Waters biography for the PBS American Masters series, and producing works on ultimate cult band Big Star and Memphis' powerhouse R&B label Stax Records. Gordon's vast curiosity and sense of history takes him away from music for his first theatrical film, the documentary Best of Enemies, co-directed with Morgan Neville, whose documentary on the lives of backing vocalists 20 Feet from Stardom feels like an instant classic. Best of Enemies explores the debates between conservative publisher William F. Buckley and historical writer, satirist, and playwright Gore Vidal. Vidal and Buckley's ten articulately cantankerous bouts held during ABC's coverage of the presidential conventions of 1968 are forever remembered for the moment when Buckley angrily lashed out at Vidal, threatening violence and calling Vidal a queer, all on national TV, mind you, after Vidal labeled Buckley a crypto-Nazi. The networks saw big money and name-calling debates, and the film suggests we've been down a dreary road ever since. Our conversation was originally scheduled to take place in the lobby of a downtown Philly hotel. I got there and found Mr. Gordon sitting for an interview with a print journalist in the noisy hotel bar and was disappointed to find out that no conference room had been booked to provide a quiet space for our recording. So I sort of took reality into my own hands and decided I could set up some chairs and mics in the far corner of the hotel lobby. Our interview started, but ten minutes into our discussion, Chet from security lingered menacingly over our shoulders. Listen closely, and you might hear us being asked to leave the hotel immediately. I'm very sorry. We're also in private space, private function here. I worried about that, but I checked it out. There's some nobody in there.
1: <laughs> okay. There's no way to stop this. It wasn't approved by the
0: hotel. Okay. Even though it was the last interview of a long day and Robert had family and dinner reservations waiting, he was uber gracious enough to jump into a cab and reconvene back at the Buskirk kitchen table. From there, we discussed Gordon's fascinating film, but I was excited to drag him into a discussion about our mutual love for the music and art of Memphis, talking about the late musician Alex Chilton, Isaac Hayes, Jeff Buckley, who spent his last days in Memphis, as well as the influential photographer William Eggleston, whose Lewd-fueled, videotaped late-night ramble, Stranded in Canton, was co-produced by Mr. Gordon. We begin by discussing his best of enemies, which masterfully brings an urgency and suspense to this piece of television history nearly 50 years old. These two men, Buckley and Vidal, both born into great wealth and privilege, were thrust into the spotlight in one of the country's bleakest moments. It's 1968, just months after the assassinations of Robert Kennedy And Martin Luther King Jr., with the Vietnam War raging, with Paris engulfed in riots, with the pair's final debates happening after Chicago's Mayor Daley ordered the police to violently disperse protesters in an ugly evening in which both CBS Newsmen Dan Rather and Mike Wallace were roughed up on camera. People began taking sides at dinner tables and workplaces across the country, and the conservative Buckley and the liberal Vidal captured the passions of the people looking fearfully at the future of our country. As much good journalism does, the film aims for an even-handedness that draws many parallels between the film's odd bedfellows. A good objective journalist might accept this premise, but seeing that the Fun to Know podcast currently has no sponsors to offend, I can admit to being completely repulsed by William F. Buckley. First, his stands on a ruling class should be inherently abhorrent in a democracy, but mostly for the role he took as the architect of rhetoric for the Reagan Revolution and all the misery it left in its wake. Taking advantage of corporate donors and public TV funding, Firing Line gave Bill a platform, and I was able to watch him defend all sorts of institutional oversteps, make public proclamations about tattooing everyone who had contracted AIDS, HIV, and to deliver it all with a routine of pithy put-downs, all delivered languorously, with that self-satisfied sneer in his slouchy posture that unfortunately gives my distaste for Buckley a personal dimension few others evoke. And his status as a champion orator are disputable if you take the time to watch him on YouTube as he wilts under pressure in debates with author James Baldwin and lefty heavyweight Noam Chomsky. As for Vidal, I'll admit to being a fan. The appearances he made on Democracy Now! in the years before his death were mesmerizing as he would give the sort of rich historical context to the news of the day that is unheard of in the corporate press. Yes, both men were flawed, but only one of them spent his life expressing concern for those caught on the less fortunate end of the American dream. It is a credit to the depth of The Best of Enemies that the film evokes a twinge of sadness from Buckley's national humiliation, but to see Vidal make such a regressive figure as Buckley, a victim of his own character, feels like an unambiguous victory in defense of the progressive ideals of our nation. But enough editorializing, let's get into our discussion with Robert Gordon. (laughs) I wanted to start with just the fact that, uh, that my own leanings, it was hard to get past the idea of really seeing William Buckley as a villain in this and, and knowing his views on race and, and what he was promoting and really promoting a ruling class in a way that, uh, I, I, w- I wasn't sure if you held back the worst information about him uh, until you sort of paired them off as sort of being, you know,
1: challengers. Two thoughts, one is um, we, we address it slightly I'll come back to that, but because more importantly, I think is that Bill could publicly change his mind, in and in, in a way, that's heroic. You know, he said terrible things about African Americans in the early 1960s, particularly things about the Birmingham bombing, the church bombing of the where the young girls were killed. But within a couple of years, he's realized that he was wrong, and he and he publicly. You know, he publicly changes his mind.
0: What, what did he say about the church bombings?
1: He defended the, you know, at, at the time he wrote, the bomber was unknown. And they sort of, uh, National Review gives, a, in, an, in an opinion piece, gives a justification for how this could be. It's like, why you would want to justify this yeah. at all? Is so far-fetched.
0: It's funny, just this week, talking about modern parallels with this, uh, somebody, uh, two men, uh, beat a, a Hispanic homeless man in, uh, I believe, the Boston area and uh, said that Donald Trump was right, something needed to be done. Trump himself said, uh, a lot of the people who follow me are very passionate people. They're passionate <laughs> about As our like country. As if defending it. Yeah, defending wow. it. And I horror. Did, And uh, it did seem <laughs> like a shocking new uh, new low, but hearing hearing any defense of the, of the of the church bombing which has now become sort of a, a national tragedy is right is a uh,
1: and and but but at the same time as offensive as that is the fact that you can publicly change your mind and say you know i used to think this but now i'm thinking not this yeah and i renounce my previous thoughts that's brave you know yeah, I, yeah. I i i admire that i don't admire where he came from but i admire where he got to yeah. and, and and especially the ability to publicly get there
0: but, but that really did set my uh, my sights for really seeing this dragon slayed knowing where he was at that okay, time okay well and, we well know he was in, there to defend he'd already changed in 68 oh, really? yeah. yeah
1: but 68 uh, already changed and uh todd gitlin you know makes passing reference to bill's ideas of rule by elite beginning with him. Yeah. And we address that, you know, in the movie and, and go into the mayoral campaign. And and really what's interesting there is that Bill establishes what becomes the base for the right wing, this sort of disenfranchised, lower class, uh, economically lower class. Is he at the, white...
0: root of, the of the Southern strategy? Of, of.
1: Well, it's Nixon's Southern strategy, but Bill's identifying that same audience in the North.
0: And articulating it.
1: And, yeah, so there's a coming together there that really reaches its apogee in 1980 with Ronald Reagan. You know, both sort of forces come together. But, of course, they end up eroding the base, right, because now we see that, you know, where that leads to is the Tea Party, which is exactly where Bill, you know, which is not terribly unlike the John Burt Society and where Bill arrested the party from. As he was trying to move the party forward, he moved them back. He or he created a base that was going to erode and lead back to where they came from. And, and, and he lived to see that, by the way. You yeah. know, he lived to see the rise of the Tea Party. He lived to see Sarah Palin, and so he lived to see everything he'd accomplished. And he was no supporter of Sarah Palin. No, at he lived all. to no. see everything yeah. he'd accomplished be erased. Yeah,
0: yeah. In some ways, looking at the at the past, and this isn't really a narrative. I, I think that is explored in the film. But in some ways, I looked at, at them as they were both winners of the debates in, in a different way or a winner of the, of the war in that uh, William F. Buckley found a home in the ruling class and really did see the rise of the Republican party and see the rise of Reaganism and then see the rise of the conservative movement. But Gore Vidal also saw, he, he also saw the birth of sort of personal liberation movements that. that Absolutely. That he uh, it took,
1: you know, it's interesting, you, you know, when you think of who won this, there's three, there's three moments to check the moment itself at the debate. Um, Buckley clearly loses. The unflappable Bill flaps and flops. <laughs> and and so Gore wins the debate. But uh, that's 1968. By 1980, Reagan's elected. Bill's, you know, all through the 80s, is the apogee of Bill's work. Um, so Bill clearly wins. And if, if we were talking in 1990, we'd say, well, in the long term, Bill won. However, now we're in, you know, 2015 and we can look at it and say in this long term gore won bill's ideas have fallen off gore's ideas have become mainstream these you know gay rights marriage of homosexuals uh legalization of marijuana all these things are mainstream you know they were so far-fetched for so long so and gore lived to see the, the, the 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 beginnings of that so in a way they kind of each got their just desserts how prescient was Myra Breckenridge, a novel in which a man becomes a woman becomes a man. You know, I mean, you know, so we'll what's happening. Jenner yeah, story welcome to, you know, yeah, yeah.
0: it's amazing. Getting to that moment and the, and the moment where, uh, where Buckley uh, did lose, lose his cool. I, I really see that uh, there's a question there about the, the slur that the Gore Vidal does get mm-hmm. to at that point, talking about him as a crypto Nazi. And right. the, I had to question the, the fairness of, of, of pulling out that term and,
1: Okay, so first of all, he you know the whole Nazi terminology is pulled out by the moderator Howard K. Smith when they're raising a Viet Cong flag in the park. He likens it to raising a Nazi flag during World War II. And this is Howard K. Smith, who's been largely absent, a moderator unlike we see these days, a moderator who's not trying to be a star himself, who's just throwing sort of throwing out the first question and basically gets out of the way for the next 15 minutes. But here he's involved. This is the worst moment. This is the worst moment in 1968 you know there's been talk of civil war proper you know the new york times mainstream publications are writing of the possibility of civil war in america so there's been riots in paris in 68 there's a sense that the whole world is coming unglued and
0: that night in Chicago. Was that
1: particular it? night in Chicago is the the night before they'd been up till like four a m chanting uh, about Johnson and about the war. You know, all this is really driven by the Vietnam War and the mandatory draft. And on the way into the TV studios that evening, they'd walked through tear gas. Tear gas had come in through the vents. so they're rubbing their eyes. There's like there's this sense that the split in the nation between the establishment and the anti-establishment that that has been filtered down onto the streets of Chicago and that this fight on the streets of Chicago between the police and the and the yippies has been filtered down into Gore Vidal and William Buckley. So these two men are essentially representative of the whole coming apart of the world and they go at it that night and Gore by calling Bill a crypto-nazi is undermining everything that Bill has that Bill Buckley has achieved in his public life. He has wrested the conservative movement from the clutches of the John Burt Society from what he called the uh, kooks and the anti-Semites and he's um, given them a philosophy and intellectual rigor, a way to think and move and act and, and and a respectability and Gore in one word there undermines it, which unleashes in Bill this Torrent and threat of violence and calling him a queer. Of course now, you know, we're in an age when there's comedies about soup Nazis, right? But Nazi at the time, we're less than a quarter century after World War II. It's a fully loaded term. Queer, we're in the age of queer studies. But at the time, you could, you know, people were committing suicide for being uh, exposed publicly as gay uh it was it's a real career ender and Gore, and uh Buckley's doing this on national T V. Was All, Gore
0: Vidal, was there any sense that he was out as a gay man absolutely. in the public? Yeah. In in forty eight,
1: nineteen forty eight, he'd written his third novel, The City and the Pillar, uh with unapologetically, uh a protagonist who was gay. And so there was a sense that he was gay. There was also this sense in society of accepting uh gay clowns, uh sissy clowns, I think was a term you used <laughs> earlier. You know, Paul Lynn, Truman Capote, Liberace. So there was, and Gore had been b- blackballed. He felt from the New York Times for ten years because of the the City and the Pillar, and and so outing <clears throat> outing him wasn't necessarily revealing new information, but though at the same time it was. Not everyone knew, not everyone this is twenty years after the City in the Pillar, not everyone had read the City and, and the Pillar. It doesn't seem like it
0: would be something that would be said on, on TV. It
1: certainly it? would not be said on TV. And more importantly, if it were said on TV, it wouldn't be said in the way Bill said it. Bill, you and we show it in the movie, you know, it's such vitriolic it would be sh- it would be shocking now if somebody said anything the way Bill said that then. This with this full sense of attack. It's not like this and this is what I mean about the networks taking the wrong message. They they like to create Roman candle wars where these you know these harmless fireballs are shot at each other as often as possible between the commercial breaks, and that's modern punditry. But this Buckley and Vidal in '68 is two guys fully engaged with the uh, stakes being the future of the nation, the republic is at play here, and each really believes that the other will take down the nation. And so they have to take down that person to prevent them from taking down the nation.
0: At, at the end of the film, you really suggest that uh, the end of a, of a, of a of public square uh, and, the, and the rise of, of sort of argu- argumentative uh, debating TV is, is, a, is a piece of what what led us to, to where we're at. What do, what do you think of where we're at and how we got here?
1: Well, I think that...
0: That really comes after the credits actually too, doesn't it? I think you, well, you, you We wasted credit. no space, man. We <laughs> wasted no
1: space. There was there was I remember we really worked hard to figure out where to make this point. You know, and and initially we thought, well, we have to make it we have to plan it in people's mind in the beginning. And we were working very hard in the beginning to figure out how to like we used the John Stewart crossfire appearance as one of the pieces in this sort of montage of contemporary footage. We were working very hard to work that into he the beginning. He very
0: famously came on uh, the, crossfire. the Crossfire and, and uh, sort of deconstructed <laughs> what was
1: up to. The, the, the key line is you're doing theater when you should be doing debate. And and I think
0: you did you tell the one I know those I know you're a smart guy those ties are hard to tie. <laughs> yeah, um, um, but but yeah, we we're really at this place where there's just this ugly sort of battle that doesn't really illuminate much and keeps the populace a little ignorant. So
1: my sense is that the network saw that ABC tripled their ratings with this presentation, and they said, "Oh, what we need is people yelling." They they didn't consider the fact that. This yelling was in the ninth of ten debates that people had tuned in for nine episodes of the tension building and and of the exchange of high minded extremely literate and compelling even their even their cuts their dozens you know this is essentially like like playing the dozens in rarefied air, they're bringing to bear you know. I mean, uh, Vidal quotes Pericles <laughs> off-handed on national TV. When was the last time you heard that happen? You know? um, so the networks miss the idea of the content. They only go for the flame. So it's, that's why I say it's like these Roman candle wars instead of a slow fuse that's ticking and everybody's watching and everybody's riveted. Be- also because they're being respected. Vidal and Buckley didn't dumb themselves down. Now you can basically get the talking points you know in the fir- if you turn on on sunday mornings the first program reveals the talking points and you can watch everything else on mute you see them yelling and the shouting and everything but no nothing new is being said besides that week's talking points yeah. and everybody's a shill for the party these guys weren't shills for the party they were independent thinkers and you know i think we sh- there there needs to be a place to bring that back you hear it on radio actually is and- it,
0: i feel it's rare anymore that you really uh, here, anybody who's being broadcast who's really thinking at the moment, who's really, yeah. you know, uh, nobody really wants to get to kicked call- off the rolodex. No, they want to be, be called, called back. Thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so- they, and they don't
1: want to be caught thinking, and they sure don't want to be caught thinking in a way that will make you believe. You don't understand or you're dumb. Yeah. Oh, they used a word I didn't know. Hell, man, I kept a dictionary when I started watching these debates. It was like, pause? What does that mean? Let's look it up. What's the historical reference he's making? You know, like, it was fucking thrilling. I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to cuss.
0: No, it's fine. Uh,
1: <laughs> it was, But it was a real thrill to get into these debates and realize how much I didn't know. And that these guys were on national TV sharing this information. I was like, great. Hey, this is stimulating.
0: Yeah, they'll, they're, they're certainly... We uh, miss that now. <laughs> they'll certainly uh, degrade projects as saying it was too smart for the audience, but they, they never degrade anything as saying we've learned that was too dumb for the audience.
1: So, so to come back to the ending, um, our, we finally realized, ah, let's... And it's something my wife says to me with every book I write. Uh, trust your audience. you know. Was like, I was like, okay, wait a minute. Let's let the audience come to this realization on their own, just like we did, me and Morgan did when we watched these raw debates. We realized as we're getting into this, like, wow, it's so contemporary. And then at the end of the movie, we just tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, we're thinking the same thing. <laughs> it's all you need. And it was beautiful to, to see it. The first time we cut it to see if it would work, I was weeping because it was like the realization that after five years of making this film, we had an ending and it was going to really be a film. All right. <laughs>
0: Looking and doing research on this, I find very little information of you and how you ended up in this career. It seems you were sort of late in the game from making the, the switch over from from writing to filmmaking. Was that a, a natural progression for you?
1: Yeah, I would made super eight films as a kid, and I you know wrote in the school newspaper and all that stuff. What,
0: what films did you did you love as a kid? What, what, what first brought you to cinema?
1: Um, huh, Marx Brothers. <laughs> you yeah. know, I kind of got it. My dad got me into old. Uh, comedies Marx Brothers W.C. Field Laurel and Hardy I got into all that stuff Which isn't really Storytelling as much As gags But it was quick And it was sharp And I liked all that um, And
0: timelessly Brilliant I, I still Yeah I, I should watch W.C. Field's films alone Because it's kind of Embarrassing to be like Snorting in front of you know <laughs> yeah. Guests But uh, yeah I, I grew up loving that
1: stuff Yeah my kids When they were little They would say Come on dad Come and watch the party Again t- tonight <laughs> Jeff Buckley actually Turned me on to the party I Uh-oh. never had seen it and uh and um and he was in memphis living in memphis where i live yeah. and i got him a place down the street for me because he so like the city i was like oh there's a place for rent you know and and we were talking and he said oh you gotta watch the party and uh, the peter sellers film and we were going to make a music video using the party as our model <laughs> and, because jeff liked to dress like peter sellers dressed in that movie and my kids would always just I would be rolling on the floor laughing at every single thing they just they didn't get the movie but they'd like to watch me laugh um but uh I was living in Philadelphia after college and I was writing at the Philadelphia Inquirer and I went down to Austin Texas for a year of film school a friend hired me in Memphis to edit her documentary it ended up on um National PBS it was a little 30 minute piece called All Day and All Night with Rufus Thomas and BB B. King among others mm. And then I was back in Memphis, and I kept getting magazine work. So all of a sudden, I'm doing all these interviews and all the magazine work, which led to my first book. It came from Memphis. Wonderful and, book. Thank you. And um, all of a sudden, you know, I'm doing all this writing. And, I was, and when I got into the Muddy Waters book, I was getting as much video of Muddy as I could to get as close to him as I could. And I realized, oh, I should make a, a Muddy Doc. And I couldn't raise the money. And my friend Peter Guralnick was passing through town making the Sam Phillips documentary with this guy named Morgan Neville. And the three of us were at dinner, and I was saying, yeah, I'm about to throw in the towel on this uh, Muddy Waters documentary. Morgan sort of cocked his head and said, Muddy Waters documentary, huh? (laughs) And in short order, Morgan and I were out in the field shooting this muddy Doc. Morgan, uh, I was introducing Morgan to... Chiggers, the little, uh, <laughs> the little insect that gets Bits into, yes, and really, really itches. So uh, he was back in LA going, these aren't mosquito bites, man. <laughs> I still laugh about that. Um, and so to me, it was all the same path, just sort of one side of the line or the other. And, and I always think of my films and my books as using a specific person or institution or something to tell a larger story muddy you know is the the exodus of uh, african-americans from the south to the north and the changes in life that occur with that uh, in lifestyles and you know stacks is really an, an, a way to tell the civil rights story in a way so you know telling the vidal buckley story is a way to tell a media story how we got to where we are today so i see it as very much the same thing you know same same model but i realized that you know these guys don't play electric guitar <laughs> <laughs>
0: In Memphis, at this point, and you've really uh, done a lot to burnish the sort of romance of the town of Memphis yeah. for music lovers. Uh, I know you've influenced records I've bought in my collection, cool. and, and uh, you've crossed paths with a, a lot of legendary Memphis people. I, I don't think people would ap- appreciate it if I, I let you stop there with the Jeff Buckley. I okay. I crossed paths with Jeff Buckley years ago and found him to be a, quite a f- fascinating character. You you guess you knew him down in Memphis there?
1: Yeah, you know, not not super well, but. Um... He was recording at my friend's recording studio. Actually, the first time I met him, I was producing this Al Green box set. And I had just come from uh, the drummer Howard Grimes' house. And he had shown me, and I had to make copies, these beautiful color photographs of him as a kid on drums and some early stuff around high records. So I walk in. And so the way home to my house was coming by this recording studio. So I stop in to show my friends. And there's this kid in there. And I'm like, hey, look at these pictures I got. And we're all talking and just getting all excited. And then I left, I didn't know who he was. He didn't introduce himself, I didn't introduce myself. I was hanging out with my friends. And, and then um, later he came back to record. and I was like, oh, you're the guy I met. You know, and, he, and we put it together and he'd read my book. At that point, I think I only had, it came from Memphis. And
0: Were you a fan of his father, Tim Buckley at all?
1: Or? Not so much, you know, yeah. not so much. And um, I'm trying to think of how much I had listened to Grace. You know, I really liked the mellow songs on Grace. Me as well, Lilac
0: Wine. And yeah. Hallelujah, which has been yeah. overplayed to death by this point. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, all that stuff, much more than the Led Zeppelin influence material. Yeah. And so, but I liked Jeff a lot because he was so funny and and so we were hanging out and, and also a
0: music lover like yourself I, yeah. From what I understand. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: he was in oh i remember that he had released i think before grace he'd released a little three-song ep to radio called live at
0: live at Sine. sinai yeah
1: and yeah. one yeah. of the songs was uh from chilton's big star third and so oh, i had so played saying that saying i had Andrew, a radio think, at the yeah. time yeah. yeah i was like oh i'd played that you know and so that's how i knew jeff buckley because he was a chilton fan
0: uh-huh. And I was a Chilton fan. And we have to get to that name as well.
1: Okay, <laughs> so um, so uh, you know, he said, "I think I'll stay in town." I was like, "Hey, there's a place down my I lived on this cool, funky street. There's a place down the block for rent, and he rented it. And the owners lived across the street from me. They were very, extremely redneck, and Jeff was really taken with that. And he would go hang out there. I couldn't do it, man. It was like I was uh... But but How did would... you know their red neckness? What was the sign? Well, their father was super cool. Their father actually these people's half brother was Michael O'Brien, who took the pictures on the original release of Big Star right. Oh, and Tommy, the dad, when I'd rented from him, uh, I'd rented the house across the street that he lived in. He owned this, a lot of houses on this block. And then he died and the kids had divvied him up. And so Tommy was super cool. And some of the kids were super cool. And some of the kids weren't. And, and Jeff was really taken by the kids who weren't. <laughs> and Which was very interesting, you know. I remember sending David Brown, the biographer, over to talk to them. I don't remember if he made the book or not.
0: Speaking of Alex Chilton, I, I work at a WPRB, the Princeton radio station, and meet a new influx of, of young people every year. And uh, Big Star's name still comes up. I still yeah. meet kids that are obsessed with those records and hunt those records down. I imagine we're in, in, in Memphis, we were quite. Quite some time, the same time Alex was there?
1: Yeah, well, I was born and raised in Memphis in 1961. I didn't realize 61, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, my mom was from New York and she talked the accent out of me as a kid. When, <laughs> the first time I heard Levon Helm, you know, I was like, Mom, I could have sounded like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I just dropped my kid off at Temple University and as a freshman, and she was wearing a. So I checked on her the next day. She was wearing a Big Star shirt, and someone came up on the you know on the sidewalk and said, "Oh, I like your Big Star shirt, Lila. Like, there, there's your friend." <laughs> uh, because I feel like even still, it's kind of like a secret code. It certainly was when I was writing. It came from Memphis, which was in the mid 1990s. You know, yeah. even then, I mean, they've, they've become way more popular now. As unknown, relatively unknown as they are now, they're they're way more known than they were then. And it, and back then, it was sort of like. Um, the secret knock to get in the back of the door of the nightclub. You know, like if you if you knew about Big Star, it suggested certain things about you, and you know you were simpatico with someone.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I had to pay twenty dollars a piece for the first two records as uh, bootlegs uh, in order to get into that club. But I was very excited to be there once I was. Yeah. But there's such a sensitivity in those, in those two records. There really, is, uh, there, there really is something to them that, that just seems to cut through to, to youth today and for you know, probably forever.
1: Well, but you- I mean, Alex is such an interesting guy, and I think that's what you hear in those records. Did you, he- did you hear them when they first came out? No, 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 no. I heard them. I heard Big Star Third when it first came out, which was about 78. And I was, you know, toward the end of my high school career, and this girl turned me on to it. And it was so depressing and it was perfect, you know, it was and his voice was so beautiful and it was also spare and 78, you know, disco was on the rise and rock and roll was awful. And and, you know, this was a record that really spoke to me. Um, Kangaroo actually is the song that I've always liked the most. So I've always, always
0: held up Holocaust as being maybe the saddest song of all time.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Big Sucks. Black Car is pretty sad. Ah. Um, but so I kind of went into it backwards from there. I think actually the next one I got was uh, the second one, and then I finally got the first one. So I really did go backwards in. And, you know, September Girls knocked me out. I was like, wow, what a beautiful, great song. And everything was, you know, those records were so fun, and then they had their sort of folky love songs at the end. You know, I just liked that it was, uh, you know, it was there was something very direct about it. And also something kind of aloof. And, you know, you mentioned the youth that come in and 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 now I can no longer separate the story of the people from the music. So Alex's story of this being this 16 year old recording star with the box tops and, you know, you have to get a little psychological and go, oh, you know, I, you know, I knew that he really liked young girls all his career and the sort of arrested development. And um, you sense that in the music, you know,
0: I, I always sensed and sort of musically there was something that, that was a real time in his life, especially those first two records. He never really made anything that that sounded like that again. Yeah, that, that it well, really. It almost seemed like that was almost the, the, the death of a sensitivity within those records somewhere and uh, a, a, gu- a different guy emerged after that.
1: I think so. I mean, I, I think that th- that's third, you know, that that, that 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 the guy who was vulnerable got so scarred that the vulnerability was scarred over. And especially after 3rd, when he sort of lays it all out. I mean, I love Like Flies on Uh, Sherbert. Somebody
0: just the other day made a passing reference to that record, and that record holds its own uh, I remember
1: when Like Flies on Sherbert came out. I was living in Memphis, and uh, I read the local reveal. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I guess I knew Big Star 3rd then. And so I go to the pop tunes where you could play the records before you bought them and i heard waltz across texas and he was you know he bumped into the microphone in the song and i was like well if this guy doesn't care enough to do it right i'm not buying this and about six months later i was like please look in the back and see if you have a if you have a, a, another coffee you know and i took it home and it was fantastic you know but i brought it and in. i initially had that sort of you know, I came to it with a lot of preconceptions and pretense and I'd learned and then sort of, I got to understand punk rock and I was like, Oh, Wait a minute, I need to go back to that thing.
0: Well that's well, that's sort of the secret club of Alex Chilton as well, is that that record doesn't come out to you. You really have to go to that record. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a place that, you know, is is uh, high you know, on top of your soul at all times. Once you go
1: there, it's very rewarding. It's maybe the rockinest record of all time, you know. It's
0: Rock hard. And all yeah, time anthem you know, for me. there's video
1: of that that services on YouTube every now and then. Oh really? They're, yeah, they were running around the studio with a uh, open reel Sony Portapak. Um, and it's really cool. There's even they even shot some of the master takes.
0: I, I was a big fan of, of uh, the group he would produce in the '80s. It's uh, Falco and Panther Burns, yeah. and I kind of feel like uh, uh, somehow in the, the, the White Stripes. There's oh, some yeah. sort of a relevance with them that I still uh, hear their name coming up from time to time. It's being you know particularly wild and personal take on that sort of uh, certainly blues personal.
1: And, you know, because in part what that was about was like Tav told me i, I was at the, i I lucked into the very first Panther burn show in the loft at 96 South Front first time i ever saw anyone pogo you know and <laughs> and um and it was all so far and it was so powerful but it was also chaotic, and And I got to know Tav soon thereafter, and he said, "Yes, my approach to electric guitar is like a Kodak Instamatic camera. You know, you just pick it up and shoot, you just pick it up and hit it." Um, <laughs> and, and And I think that that, and over time, of course, he became an accomplished player, not quite an accomplished vocalist, and that's charming too. Yeah. You know that's always been a thing I like about. That that's the Tav lineage that goes to the Hellcats and Alluring Strange and certainly a vocal stylist. You know, <laughs> you, you know you're hearing You've been ta- quite Thal- kind.
0: <laughs> uh, those records are, are really ingratiating to me, though. I, oh, I, I really, love them, man! Yeah. I love yeah. them. Uh, I have the Hellcats records as well that yeah. though that made around the same time. Yeah. Also, completely charming. Yes, and and not maybe the the rock solid uh, Booker T and the MG style of Memphis music.
1: But there's an earnestness. You feel like you 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 feel the attempt to play. So many times, people are such accomplished players that it, it it's maybe a startling accomplishment the way they're playing, but it has no emotion. Whereas these bands, these near bands that are trying to be bands, you you know, it's like the shags in a way. You you can hear the effort, and it's invigorating. Yeah.
0: What's what's going on in Memphis now musically? Uh is it is are there still new things bubbling up yeah Yeah.
1: there still are um you know and, and and interestingly it's still the heritage still draws people who are trying new things um you know uh there's a girl named amy levere who's got a real nice voice and plays a great bass she just married will sexton they're doing a thing called motel mirrors it's really cool you know the whole crunk scene came out of there as well, and um, what else is happening in Memphis? I guess
0: hustle and flow sort of documents that. that yeah, sort exactly. Of rap that was scene. sort of the
1: peak of, the, of that. Um, you know, the score, the the classical score that we use in the Vidal Buckley film Best of Enemies is by a cellist from Memphis. I sort of had him in my back pocket, and we were looking for a, a uh, classical scoreist, and I didn't want to throw him out too soon. But I wasn't going to wait till the end. And we tried a bunch of people. We couldn't find anything we liked. I was like, try this guy. I was like, oh, this is working. And so, you know, my, my friend from around the corner got to score this film. And it's fantastic. People love the music and Best of Enemies.
0: Just this week, I, I saw a, a friend's print of the Isaac Hayes film, uh, Black Moses of Soul, which uh, records a, a show he did in 1971. And, uh, is that when
1: it is? 71? I believe it's 71. No way. No it's got to be later. It's got to be like 74
0: or 5. 73 is the release date, but I was imagining that the show was done uh, the same time that uh, the Isaac Hayes' Movement album came out, just uh, from, the, uh, from the playlist. I could be wrong.
1: Okay. It's just, I remember it's... You know, Isaac doesn't hit until 69. And then in like 70, he's putting out two records a year, 71, two or three records a year. So he's getting into this period of excess that builds up, you know, over the 70s. I sort of remembered it as excessively excessive uh-huh. and, and, a, and a later mid-70s thing. But okay, <laughs> 73 is a release date. I really, I forgot
0: the, the, the narrative that's often talked about with Stax is that Otis died and, and uh, they lost their big hit maker. But uh, thinking of where I, Isaac Hayes's career at that point, mm-hmm. uh, he was a, a, a oh, musical he, powerhouse. He's the time. Otis of
1: part two. Yeah, uh, yeah, I wrote a book called Respect Yourself, which is the Stax record story. Came out about a year and a half ago. To, to much acclaim. Yes, thank you. It was, you know, as I sort of got into it, I realized, yeah, because I'd always heard the same narrative. I was like, wait a minute. Everything from, like, Stacks breaks very easily into two parts. There's the early years, or the, like the first half, which is distributed by Atlantic Records, Otis Redding is the star. And in late 67, December of 67, Otis dies. And in mid 68, They lose their distribution deal with Atlantic, and Martin Luther King is killed in Memphis. And and
0: somehow Atlantic ends up with the rights to their their masters, too, don't they? Yes,
1: because Jim Stewart signed a contract he didn't read. Oh, my god! The owner signed a contract he didn't read. Part two kind of kicks off with this release of... uh, They're trying to release 30 LPs and 30 singles all at once, and uh, Isaac Hayes emerges as the surprise star of this era, and um and a star
0: uh, you know turning into a movie star as well yeah. like he really had the the full package and, and one
1: of the great r songwriters he's the he's the back on which stacks is built for all of its second career um i talked to i realized this when i was talking to one of their salesmen who said we'd go in there to find out what what singles we were going to be shopping or we'd be selling, and we'd hope there was an Isaac Hayes, because they knew they could sell. Isaac Hayes was golden. So did you did you interview Isaac Hayes throughout this, this period at all? I interviewed Isaac Hayes for the first time in about 1990, uh, probably before I wrote It Came From Memphis. Yes, yeah. definitely before I wrote It Came From Memphis. I was making, a lot of the roots of It Came From Memphis are in a documentary I was making for Ardent Recording, uh, studios at the time that never came out. I did a bunch of interviews and a lot of that stuff. I, so I had transcripts and I used those transcripts and Isaac was one of them. Um,
0: How did you find him? I mean, he he reads so lovable on, uh, on he film. Was,
1: oh, he's a great guy, mm-hmm. very smart, very funny. You know, I hated when he died and all these, you know, he had such bad luck. In a way he became the symbol, especially before as Stax was going down, he was sort of made into the symbol of white Memphis taking down black stacks, and he was the symbol. And he lost you know, the rights to all of his songs, and so ever after now when you hear Hold On, I'm Coming or any of the Isaac Hayes hits, none of that money goes to Isaac Hayes. His partner, David Porter, was able to hold on to his rights, uh-huh. but Isaac lost his to a bank, and then they... It all goes to universal recording, universal publishing. David Porter
0: has passed at this time no, too, hasn't he? How no, he's no, still no. around.
1: He's he's around and well in Memphis, still working in music and an entrepreneur doing very well. Good to hear. Good to yeah.
0: hear. Did you find anything new with it by the time you must have found out something new by the time you finished your, your Stacks book?
1: Well, lots of new things, you know, but really the most interesting to me new thing was the realization in the second half what they were after. Sort of to understand the second half, I realized, you know, it was Al Bell's driven. It was a company founded by two sisters, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton. Sorry, two siblings, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton. That's
0: where the stacks comes yes. from, Stuart and Axton. Stuart
1: and Axton. And then Estelle is bought out at this turning point in 68, and Al Bell comes in. And the second half is Al Bell and and Jim Stewart, and Al Bell ultimately buys out Jim Stewart. And and I ultimately came to understand Al Bell's goal as bringing middle class livelihood to African Americans. He wanted to spread the wealth. And getting a job at Stacks meant getting a really good paying job. And um, in fact, a too good paying job, part of what took Stacks down was their payroll was exorbitant. Mm -hmm. But it was all in the cause. In the same way that Dr. King was trying to spread respect, Al Bell was trying to spread economic, Respect.
0: You know, it all, it all sort of culminates in, into the Stacks concerts yes. yeah. that happened in, in L.A. They moved out to L.A. much like Motown did. And uh, they were very, you know, that that film reaches into the community and, and, and talks to people in, yeah. uh, in Watts as well. It's a, it's a fascinating document.
1: Yeah. I made a documentary. That book grew out of a documentary I made about Stacks. That was for American Respect Masters Yourself. as well, right? It was for um, Great Performances. Great Performances. Yeah, PBS. also PBS. Yeah. <music>
0: Letting no resource for Memphis go untouched. You right. also, uh, you also did a documentary on William Eggleston, yeah. the uh, incredible uh, photographers.
1: Yes, uh, is he still present there? Is he still? Uh... Yes and no. Um, I mean, he still lives there. It doesn't go out a lot.
0: Probably best known to some people for the uh, the photo of the uh, light bulb on the yeah. on the cover of the second oh, the of the Big Big Star, second Radio City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you go online and said said look uh, through his history as a photographer, uh, oh, unbelievable it's stuff. Godfather
1: yeah. of color photography. And he,
0: he did a video film at one point as well. Do you know
1: about this? Yeah, that's, that's what Stranding that's Canton is. Okay. Yeah. So so I did this. I did this.
0: I I actually watched that late at night One night on YouTube And was riveted by it Oh yeah 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 man
1: It's unbelievable So so here's how that came to be I didn't realize you were five. Yeah 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 (laughs) Um, In About 1984 I'm living in Philly I read Peter Guralnik's Sweet Soul Music
0: Another uh, You know Seminal text
1: Exactly And I was like Oh what I picked it up I was like What can this book teach me You know about my hometown I was like (laughs) Wow This book's teaching me a lot So the next time I went home Christmas of 84 I called Dickinson and set up an interview. And I had been really uh, affected by a mud- Jim Dickinson played in this band called Mudboy and the Neutrons. I'd been really affected by by a concert they did in Memphis um, that I'd seen as a kid at the Civic Blues Festival. So I'm Sid getting- in the band as well. Sid Salvage, Jimmy Crossway, Lee Baker, and. Uh, and the Jim sweetest Dickinson.
0: voices of all time since. Yeah, Selv-
1: absolutely, man. And that's why they were so great. They were these four people who shouldn't have fit together, who created a perfect whole that was not a circle and it was not a square and it was not anything that was like anything else. It was its own thing.
0: Sort of held together by Memphis, Greece. Exactly.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So uh, I do this interview with Jim Dickinson and he tells me, uh, you know, it's like it's sort of my er text for my career. You know, it became the kernel that that created It Came From Memphis, Um, and in the course of it, he he mentions this guy, Jerry McGill, he mentions Bill Eggleston, and he mentions this footage Eggleston shot called Stranded in Canton. Well, immediately, I was already interested in film at the time, I was like, oh my God, one day I want to get a hold of that. And so after I made It Came From Memphis, I had an in with the Egglestons because they respected the book. I was like, I really want to cut that film. I don't remember if I got to do it right then. Bill was drinking a lot then, and I sat with Bill, and like there wasn't digital technology at the time, and it didn't work out then. I can't think I came back to it later after I made the Muddy Waters documentary, is what it was. I came back to them and said, "Now I'm, let's do this," because technology's caught up. And so, so Bill had gone around with this black and white uh, early video camera. And he had taken out the, it was a tube camera, he taken out the tube that came with it and put an infrared tube in. So he could go into a pitch black room and the tube would, would pick up the heat from a person's skin and, and make images that way, not based on light, but based on heat. So everybody had this glow about them. And it was this wild footage and I, would, I always wanted to cut it. And it
0: seems like a midnight ramble that you might not survive in a way. Exactly.
1: To me, I think of it as like the greatest immersion piece of 1970s drug culture you'll ever experience. It's Quaaludes on film, and <laughs> with a Southern lilt. Yeah. So, so half the footage was missing, and we did a search, and it turned out to be in this guy's garage in California. We found it and put it all together, and. Digitized it and I cut it over time, you know, and sort of made this series of vignettes. That's kind of a autobiography of Bill. And How
0: would you say it's an autobiography of Bill?
1: Well, because it's Bill turning the camera on the world he knew, and so it's telling. It's Bill telling his story with himself as the hole in the center. You never really see Bill. You hardly see Bill. A couple times, Bill's drunk and someone picks up the camera and tapes him. But you don't really see him much, but you get a sense of the world he lived in. Yeah. And that's how it's his autobiography. It's
0: a it's a striking
1: piece. Is, is it available commercially? Or? It's available commercially as a photo book with the video inserted in the back through Twin Palms Publishers. But I think you can still see it for free on the Internet. Um, I admit that's how I, I saw yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they were supposed to take it down a year and a half ago, and they swore they would, and they haven't. And, <laughs> Whatever. Perfect
0: mood late at night to, to stumble across that. It's uh,
1: Stranded in Canton.
0: <laughs> Amazing piece. I'm uh, uh, glad to know you, uh, yeah. you, you took part in that. Um, well, I, I think I've, I've, I've shall, shall we end it here? Uh, thank you so much. It was such a, such a pleasure to talk to you finally. Or yeah, how about that?
1: This is the first interview I've had where we've talked about Gorvidal, William Buckley, and Isaac Hayes. <laughs> 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 Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks. One, two,
0: three, four. That's it for our show. Again, thanks for Mr. Gordon for being such a mensch above and beyond all Call of Duty. Thanks for Donna at the Promotions Group for help setting this up. You can catch past episodes of the Fun and O podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We have a couple of fantastic guests that are waiting in the wings. I'll be at the Rotunda at 40th and Walnut in Philadelphia on the University of Pennsylvania campus hosting a screening of Russian director Alexei Gehrman's epic sci-fi satire It's Hard to Be a God on Thursday, September 10th as part of Andrew's Video Vault series. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know.
1: We're free, I tell you. So wake up, it's time. Taking the blues home in a brown paper bag. With one last hopeful glance at the mirror, He smoothed his yard sale tie and left his hot plate room to risk the turned down mouth of the world and find some feminine charms to induce to share his Friday night page in the nightclub lights of Beale Street Girls. Year after year, he stuck his luckless jaw out, then trudged with the parade, smiling and winking for hours at prospective babes, who invariably twisted their perfume heads and sneered their lips until he just sunk inside his thrift shop suit and became a bug. Sucked stale smoke. The gaudy display of women in fashion giggled in pairs and whispered and laughed and left wrapped to the bosom of judges and lawyers and doctors and cops on a party. While the neon blared, the drums boomed from the raucous rooms. The sexy saxophones left him short-cutting alleys with fresh despair. Young hoods, with crime in their eyes and stolen three-piece silk on their backs, watched him like cougars, away from the smear of lights, bathing Memphis in music downtown until they simply strutted away and inside to grab the squealing females who slithered like pulsating maniacs, teeth bared, perfume spewed, liquor inhaled to the screams of, get down, get down. But the shadow held him home And the circus minutes ticked with monotonous rhythm Here he stood again amid the bravado A creature ignored Might as well have been in Moscow for all the good his knowledge of the blues did his quest disenfranchised winos grabbed his sleeve and told him like ghosts of their years by the river they run me out chili train said They run us all out from downtown, you know. Hell, we got a right to the blues. Somewhat later, as the dawn smeared his eye, the waitress forgot to put pickles on his plate inside the arcade cafe.